Happy Lord's Day, everyone. On this Sunday School edition this week, we're going to be having a study on Christmas. Before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather in this uh, way this evening. And we pray as we look into this study that you remind us of the plan that you had for salvation by sending your Son into the world in the flesh as a baby in weakness, in the weakness of the flesh, without sin, but still undergoing the pains of the flesh, hunger, getting tired, getting hot, getting cold. And you have shown your power that even in this lowly state, your son, the servant, is able to defeat death and for those united in him will be raised in him and death is defeated in him. And this is the ultimate celebration of the incarnation, of the Christmas story, because intertwined in his birth is his death. If the Lord is to come and save his people, it has been prophesied from the fathers from of old of what that would entail. With sin comes a sacrifice. And let us remember that as we look at this Christmas study and worship your Son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, real quick, why are we uh, going over the study? Uh, I, I think it's important to go over the history of Christmas and almost maybe a little bit of an apologetic of why we celebrate Christmas as believers. Not everyone celebrates Christmas in the church, and that's okay. What this is not meant to be, this is not trying to promote Christmas for every Christian to celebrate. Uh, those who should cel- celebrate Christmas uh, according to their conscience. But uh, I am well aware that as Christians mature, they may decide at one point, hey, you know what, I think I want to celebrate the Incarnation. I want to come together and focus on Christ's birth and the Christmas story, the birth narrative, God's sovereignty and Christ's birth and his fulfilling of prophecies as a child. And this is to go over some of those things. It's uh, intent is to remind us what we're doing this season. And as we start this study, and I hope it's probably not, it's, hopefully it's not going to be too long. <laughs> I'm uh, not known for my brevity most of the time. Anyway, before we start with the uh, quick history of uh, of Christmas, I'm gonna I want to start by reading Martin Luther's. Uh, first theses of his 95 theses uh, that he uh, puts on the door of Wittenberg, Wittenberg in 1517. I know it's not Reformation anymore. Why are we reading <laughs> the 95 theses? Well, we're always reforming. So it doesn't matter if it's October, November, December, and maybe we'll read a thesis in July. Why not? Hallmark has Christmas in July. Why not reading? Why, why shouldn't we read the theses in July? Anyway, all right, so Luther's first theses is this. Our Lord 
and master, Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. And this thesis really is the foundation upon the 94 that follow this opening salvo of a thesis by Martin Luther. Everything is based on repentance. And even the Christmas story. Now, it's a little different because as we go over the Christmas story, I'm not going to go over it as a call to repentance. The Christmas story may well bring sinners to repentance. I'm not saying that. But in the celebration of Christmas, we're actually not coming as a, like, using it as a confession of sin. Christmas is a celebration that we can repent in the first place. Because without the Son, without the Incarnation, there would be no place to put repentance. Christ must die for us to be saved and for, for that repentance to do anything. It has to, we have to be imputed with a righteousness, and that has to be from Christ. And our sin must be imputed to him. So the Christmas story is celebrating repentance that we can do it. So even though we're not, and even in this context of Martin Luther's thesis here, because he's specifically talking about indulgences and justification, the Christmas celebration is still in the realm of repentance and as believers living in, in continual repentance. Okay, a quick history of, of Christmas. All right, so when was the first Christmas? Well, obviously the first Christmas was when Christ was born. And as I mentioned just previously on repentance, we're going to see Simeon and Anna the prophetess joyfully worship the Son in the flesh as the Savior of Israel, the one whom the fathers have been waiting for, the one whom Abraham saw and was glad. This is God's people celebrating the first Christmas. And we will echo this celebration in what we do this coming week as we draw near to the day in which uh, believers come together to, to celebrate the incarnation. There's obviously they're celebrating in the birth narrative, honor given to the newborn king. Magi eventually arrive to worship him. Obviously, that was the first Christmas. I guess the better question is probably, you know, when did the church, subsequent Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, implement and celebrate the Lord's birth, and obviously, you know, how so? Did their celebrations actually look like today's? Uh, would, it, would it surprise you if I said, who cares? We actually, we actually don't have an exact date. It's not really until the second century, really until there's really a, a, a considerable interest in... And by the early third century, prior to the commemoration of Sol Invictus by the Romans, uh, a date that will be important later, uh, there's, there were already two different dates for Christ's birth, the 25th of December and the 6th of January. The 6th of January eventually becomes associated with the arrival of the Magi in the Western Church and Christ's baptism and the birth of Christ in the Eastern Church. And what do I think? Uh, what do I think the dates uh, were? Was it 
were was the church celebrating on the 25th or, or the 6th of January. I think most likely there were informal celebrations of Christ's birth early in the church. I'm talking first century, you know, shortly after Christ's ascension, uh, you know, pre eighty seventy. I think there were informal informal celebrations of the incarnation. But it was not how the pagans celebrated birthdays. It would be it would be vastly different than that. And my argument would be, well, the early church was battling Gnosticism. The apostles, the apostolic and patristic fathers, uh, the of course the apostles would be the, the twelve apostles, uh, disciples of Christ and Paul. The apostolic fathers are those who knew the apostles themselves, and the patristic fathers are just named after the patristic era or at the end of the first century. All, th- all three of these categories of men were heavily or heavily emphasized the incarnation of the Word in the flesh. And we see that in First John. We see that in Polycarp's writings. Irenaeus. And, and what better represents that than the birth narrative? And this is a similar argument critics of Christianity argue in regards to Scripture. They'll say, well, canon wasn't established until the 4th century. Most will probably say canon wasn't established until the Council of Nicaea. And I hope being at this church, being at Trinity Reformed Church, all of us can answer that kind of ridiculous Google scholarship. But where do the dates come from? How did the East and the West come to December 25th and January 6th? Ironically, it will come down to when Christ was crucified. Tertullian suggests that Christ was crucified on the 25th of March of the Roman calendar, which is also associated with the Annunciation of Christ's conception to Mary. Now, the Annunciation is when Gabriel announced Christ's conception to Mary. So that would be the Annunciation. The Annunciation is documented in the 4th century by a few different sources, Augustine being one of them. And the idea is that Christ was conceived and died on the same day of the month. Now we might go, well, that sounds kind of random. We'll get to why they had that idea in a second. If you go nine months from March 25th, which is when the West uh, celebrates, uh, well, we celebrate it on the early April, right? There's a kind of in-between. But the Western Church would celebrate Christ's crucifixion on March 25th. If you go nine months into the future, that would be December 25th. In the Eastern Church, they use the Greek calendar, which would put the crucifixion on April 6th, or really the morning of April 7th. And nine months later would be January 6th. Now, if you were to count the days between December 25th and January 6th, it would be 12, hence the 12 days of Christmas. The dates of Christ's Annunciation and Death are not a contrived practice of the modern era or anything, but have their roots in Christian and Jewish history and understanding. You know, the, the mere mention of December 25th by Augustine, for example, which he does write about, 
is evidence of the connection of Christ's birth and death. Uh, in the Talmud, specifically uh, preserved Talmud uh, of the Babylon captivity, and the Talmud is really just means study in Hebrew, and the Talmud are documents that expand on the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is a body of Jewish legal texts. Uh, and, and there we see the connection of creation and salvation being interwoven. For example, the creation of the world and the birth of the patriarchs would be on the same month. And the Talmud would be Nisan. The Talmud has the salvation of God's people being on Nisan as well, which is, you guessed it, in the Roman calendar would be March, the time of Christ's crucifixion. Now you might notice in in explaining where these dates might where these dates came from, I have not mentioned any pagan influences in the celebration of the incarnation. Obviously, one of the leading arguments against Christmas by unbelievers, or maybe even uh, some believers, is it's a synchronization of pagan practices. Most will point to Sol Invictus, established in the late 3rd century, and say, you see, you Christians just borrow from the old and claim ownership. We are the squatters of the spiritual realm. Obviously, it's quite the contrary. (laughs) In reality, we're the ones that own the home. And we get a knock at the door and find a stranger claiming that, no, in fact, they own the home. And not only the home, but everything inside the home. A ludicrous presumption, but a serious one on behalf of the spiritually homeless. The doctrine of the Incarnation is eye-popping in the Gospels as well as the Epistles. Obviously, we can go to 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Christ Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Our celebration of Christ's birth is a testament to the world that we are of God and his work. And more on that shortly. Outside the suggestion that informal celebrations that I mentioned before, where I think Early on in the church, they were informally celebrating the Incarnation. The earliest actual documentation we have of a December or January date is actually 70 years before Sol Invictus became a practice. And some historians and scholars speculate, and I agree with this as well, whatever that means. (laughs) Oh, well, if Drake agrees with it, it must be right. Some speculate that Sol Invictus was established on December 25th as an alternative to the celebration of Christ's birth, which would make sense, right? Rome is trying to lure Christians away from this this, uh, new ruler, this Jesus who claims to be king over all. And of course, by saying this, I'm not arguing that over time the celebration has synchronized with pagan culture because it has. But the the argument rejects the notion that early Christians adopted practices of pagan incarnation and simply applied them to Christ and his birth. Now that's a short history of Christmas, the dates of December 25th and January 6th. And now we'll look at what Christmas does. What Christmas does. Christmas is not neutral. Oh, it may seem harmless, 
overshadowed by the fictitious, the world attempts to neuter the birth of the God-man. Christmas is sulfuric. It eats away at a pagan culture. Christmas distinguishes the sorrow of death from the sorrow of life. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas godly, whereas worldly grief produces death. End quote. This godly grief has led us to celebrate Emmanuel, to come together as God's covenant people and to rejoice in the repentance brought by the Son. Of course, the world uses Christmas to disguise its grief. In Rome, the centurions would wear red capes in battle. And it was red because as they fought and were wounded and started bleeding, these red capes would hide the blood streaming from these open wounds. And the enemy would would look on and, and wouldn't be wouldn't couldn't see the enemy bleeding. It was it was a it was a tactic to show the invincibility of the Roman centurion. But in reality, he still bled. And if he was wounded enough, he bled out and died. The world is like the world is the same as like a Roman centurion wearing a blood red cape who's been wounded. The bleeding is disguised but death will come sooner or later. The world's exterior is adorned with lights. It attempts to exclaim, I make my own light. I determine what is light and dark. Christmas blows over the house of cards that culture has spent generations building, trying to hide the foundation of what celebrating Christmas actually means. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What Christmas is not. Christmas is not a feeling. Sentimentalism erodes the intent of Christmas. Christmas is not inclusive or egalitarian. It is not goodwill toward men universally. We do the world a disservice when we pretend that the season is for placating their fallen desires. It is true our culture has captured Christmas and attempts to hide its true purchase or true purpose. This comes from generations of those who capitulated to our world looking to suppress the knowledge of the truth. It comes from a theology of inclusivism and worldly ethics. It comes from a brotherhood of man mentality. The world attempts to kill the birth narrative by making it irrelevant. Christmas is not attempting to coexist with the world. It is not a time where we give honor to one God and then the next day offer up sacrifices to Baal, you know, to cover our bases or something. Christmas is not a day making us more holy. It does not improve justification or take the place of repentance. Christmas is not a nod of the head to God saying, See, at least I acknowledge you might exist. Isn't isn't that enough? Christmas does not take the place of sanctification. We cannot expect to show up once a year to a Christmas service and expect anything in our lives to change. 
Christmas is not a time for self-indulgence, saying to ourselves, eat and drink, for tomorrow we are saved. What Christmas is, there is another type of feasting that those believing should be doing. Not the fleeting type, the type that leads to debauchery. God's people are ones of feasting and celebration. Here are seven feasts ascribed to Israel after the Exodus. The Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. These feasts, these feasts are all reminders and types of God's salvific work to his people and are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. In the same way, when we celebrate the Incarnation, we are continuing the tradition of celebration to our Savior God, even if it is not commanded in Scripture. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 3, quote, And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. End quote. Together the Lord's holy people gather to feast on this knowledge, to consume this bread, to rejoice as the leaven of sin has been removed from an undeserving lump. Simeon knew this love, and celebrating Christmas, we echo this saint as he holds Christ Jesus in Luke two twenty nine through 33 Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Anna the prophetess acted this way in the presence of Christ. She was advanced, or quote, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So fellow Christians, eat, drink of great joy. Come together as a forgiven people of God and celebrate the birth of your King and Savior. Please pray with me. Father, as your people, we seek to know what is unknowable, which is your love. But you have given us a spirit to discern how you love us and which way you love us by sending your son to die on the cross so that we may live to glorify you and to enjoy you forever as we join with our families in celebration of the incarnation 
Let us have a new vigor into learning your character deeper to learning of your love more fully. Let us strive to do so through your word by listening to the teaching of elders that you have appointed over us in the church. Let us seek to out-honor each other in love and mercy and kindness. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.